Before we have our reading and our prayer, I'd like to uh, cover a couple, a couple things. So let me start by uh, giving you where we are. We're in part six of seven-part series on Titus. The first was following orders, the two things that uh, Paul told Titus. He was to set in order those things that were lacking and to appoint elders. The next was on choosing lieutenants, and that was uh, covering the qualifications and the role of the elder in the church. Third was establishing discipline. Titus was instructed to stop the mouths of the uh, malcontents, essentially, those that were opposing the spread of the truth. In number four, it was training troops, and Paul gave specific instructions to various social groups, the older men, the older women, younger women, younger men, the bond servants. Uh, last week, we covered honoring heroes, and so we were to uh, serve in this blessed hope of being with God one day and having uh, these bodies uh, replaced with fully righteous bodies when we see Christ. And then today's message is actually different than what you see in your uh, bulletin, is actually maintaining morale, uh, not maintaining morals. But uh, they are very similar. So now, with that, let me orient you to the handout. There are some left over on the table at the entrance, so if you don't have one, it might be handy uh, just to kind of keep track. But if you don't care to keep track, you probably won't need one. But uh, in the handout, you'll see there are a few colors and groupings. So let's start with yellow at the top. What Titus is to do. And so we see here from verse 15 and the very start of verse 1, and down here at the start of verse 8 and also verse 9, uh, we have these yellow uh, phrases. This is concerning what Titus is to do in part and what not to do down below at the end. So we'll cover those first. Next is green, what the Cretans are to do. And so that's broken up into two pieces up top here in verses 1 and 2, and then down here in the latter part of verse 8. And then the pink part will be covered along with the green up top because what they are to do and what they are not to do are grouped together. And so we'll cover pink and green together. Then we come to the blue and then the orange uh, highlight, what God has done for them and what awaits them, their future. So that's just kind of a loose structure. And I wanted to share that with you because I'll read it straightforward, but when we cover it, we'll jump around. So let's hear God's word. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would awaken us to it, that your Holy Spirit would uh, not only lead us into this regenerated new life, but also lead us into truth, uh, lead us into a proper understanding and application of that word to our lives. We give you thanks for your kindness and your love towards us. In Christ's name, amen. So we have four parts. Uh, they're kind of busted up here in many sections, but I'm going to cover this in four parts. The first concerns uh, Titus, and these are the instructions in yellow that 
uh, Paul gives specifically to Titus. So we have what he is to do. That's covered in verse 15, the very start of verse 1, and also down here in the very start of verse 8. Then it's what he's not to do is next. Then we have him discussing the Cretans, and that's in the green and the pink and then the green. And then we have the Trinity introduced in verses 4 through 6, and that's wonderful. I can't wait to get to that. And then we have it uh, wrapping up with verse 7 on what awaits these Cretans in the future. So let's start with the first section, and that's in the yellow if you want to follow along. So now, what we're going to talk about is what Titus is told to do here by Paul. So Titus is to speak. How simple can that be? He is to speak. The easy job, huh? It's not always easy to speak. What is it that he's supposed to do? What is the form of his speaking to these people? There are two words that are used to capture that, to describe it. He is to exhort and he is to rebuke. So both are forms of encouragement. They're forms of instruction, of training, and discipline under the word. But yet they are pretty different. So let's kind of give you the context, really, of when exhortation is appropriate. We're exhorting now. As a matter of fact, in the PCA, you, uh, as a, uh, if you're not licensed to preach, you're really not preaching. Even though you might come up into the pulpit, you are what's called exhorting. They differentiate between exhorting and preaching in the PCA. And so I became licensed to preach in the PCA at one point, but prior to that, when I would come up into the pulpit, I was exhorting. Now, that's kind of a nitpicky way of the Reformed Church as distinguishing between these things, but yet such distinguishing things are very helpful to maintain the hedges that we have in place, our understanding of the Word, who's supposed to do what. So, when you exhort, though, you are encouraging people. Exhortation, I think a good synonym for it would be encouragement. So when I come up here and exhort, I'm encouraging you for the most part. I'm trying to instruct, I'm trying to lead, I'm trying to guide. And this can be done one-on-one, -on -one, in groups, or in a public setting like this. But then you have this rebuke. And so you exhort someone when they're struggling with sin, perhaps, especially one-on-one. -on -one. You encourage them. You want them to overcome whatever it is they're having difficulty with. They are conscience-stricken, most likely, about their sin. They've come to you for assistance in helping overcome this, to help get beyond this. But when is it appropriate to rebuke? It's appropriate to rebuke when such is not the case in their heart. They're not conscience-stricken. They're sinning, and they're proud of it. They're non-repentant of it. They challenge you to convince them from the Scripture that what they're doing is wrong and sinful. And so that's when rebukes are called for. You take them to the Word. You instruct them. You rebuke them with the Word. And they ought then to respond with repentance. So both of these are needed in the church. He then says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So Paul has already described the Cretans, right? And they're a difficult people. So he's telling Titus, you are to exhort and rebuke with authority. Let no one despise you. This will require strong leadership. And Paul wants Titus to demonstrate firm leadership, strength and resolve in everything that he does. Don't allow them to push you around. Then he goes on in the start of verse 1, and he says, remind them to be. So it's, again, another thing. He exhorted them. He rebuked some. And now he's saying remind them. So now he's talking about them all. Remind them to be. And I'm only going to stop right there. And then we go down to all the way to verse 8 at the start. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. He's again talking to Titus. I want you to affirm these things constantly. So see, remind them they already know in verse 1. Remind them they know this, but we all need reminding. We're all forgetful. We're all neglectful of the, even the things that we know we ought to do. If we don't think people are watching, we don't care. But 
there are some things that become very noticeable, and so then you need to deal with them. How many of us have had to nag our children to take out the trash, you know? It becomes noticeable to do the litter box. These things become noticeable. We all tune them out, but yet when we have chores set up and structures in our homes, we expect them to be adhered to. And yet, how often do we have to remind, 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 rebuke as necessary? And then he's to affirm them constantly, drill them in this. What I'm teaching you, I don't expect you to just share with them once and then let it go. No, no, no. Drill them in it. Make sure they fully understand it. And the best thing there would be to make sure that they're teaching it, that these older men that you are now appointing into the eldership, make sure they're ready to train in all of these things. So now, the next part, though, what was Titus not to do? In verses 9 through 11, we're going to cover all of those right now. Let me read them. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Paul advises Titus to not even get drawn into such discussions, such meaningless things. He wants Titus focused on what's important. And if you're busy doing a whole bunch of stuff with what's not important, then you can't do the things that are good. That is, I think, one of the most insidious aspects of sin. When we fall into sin, and then we repent of that sin, but then we think that we have to spend time in this penalty box of our own making, that we now can't do anything productive for God because we've just sinned. Yes, we've repented. We've been forgiven, we think. But we wait to really do the good thing that we ought to do. When in the New Testament, Paul tells those that used to be thieves, steal no longer, and what does he tell them to do? Give. The thief has at his heart covetousness. And so what you do to overcome that then is take what you have and give it away. Start giving it away. Crucify your heart of covetousness. And so Paul wants these people focused on this, and he wants Titus focused on what is most important. Avoid this stuff that will otherwise waste your time. He wants Titus to control the agenda. Bring the discussion back to Jesus. How often have we, when we want to share the gospel with someone, been led astray? We end up arguing about evolution or about this or that or that or that, these social issues. They are useful discussions, perhaps, but don't think that that is sharing the gospel. That's sharing the outworkings of the gospel, the morality that comes from that. Get past that. Ask people why they believe those things, why they believe in homosexual marriage, why they believe in evolution. Get more and more and more to the core of their belief, into their heart. Then you might be able to get some conversation going with them. So see, that's what he's telling Titus. Don't get sidetracked. It's so easy for all of us to get sidetracked and start majoring in the minors. Now, he tells him, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. And then what does he say next? This is no coincidence. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now you're dealing with a person who you have tried to prevent everyone from getting dragged into these useless disputes but they refuse to go with you. They refuse to adhere to what it is that you're saying. They refuse to obey. They reject your authority, and he tells them right at the beginning, don't let them despise your authority. So now he says, reject them. Reject the device of man. After how many admonitions? Seven times 70, like Jesus said when forgiveness? No, one or two. You don't want to have to deal with these people. And the longer you tolerate them in your midst, the more they will undermine otherwise healthy Christians. And yet you think, well, this isn't a very Christian thing to do, to reject these people after one or two admonitions. Let God's Word define what is the Christian thing to do in every context. Don't let our popular culture tell you what to do. Let God's Word tell you what to do. And so what He says is reject them. And I believe we are very remiss in the church at adhering to Paul's instruction here. 
We tolerate fools. We think it's what it's expected of us because we're Christians. But Paul tells us what Titus is to expect. Expect them to obey. Expect them to deal with the word that should be coming to bear and crucifying them. There's something wrong with them. They are warped and sinning, he says. These people are not right. They are wolves hiding in your midst, attempting to undermine everything that you do. Don't put up with them, he says. He is very forceful. Let no one despise you who wants you to deal with such people. And so, also, when he tells Titus, let no one despise you, it's not Titus that's being despised. I hope you understand that. People say, oh, this is about his youth, and this is about this and that. No, no, no. He is a representative of God, and because of that, he's worthy of the respect that comes with that. And to Trevor's point earlier, he has the keys of the kingdom in his hand. But too often, we elders in the church are reluctant to use those keys. We must use those keys. God's given them to us for purpose. We must deal with these divisive people, banish them from the church. And if they refuse to go peacefully, we call down God's curses upon them. God will take them out on our behalf. We know he will. If we're in the right, then this is what we ought to do. And too many churches are avoiding this. They're avoiding all discipline whatsoever. And so it's no wonder that they're avoiding this because this is difficult. This is confrontational. This is way beyond rebuke. This is rejection. This is booting them out and saying, don't let the, the door hit you on the way out. So this is what we have to do. We have to become comfortable with this. Now, we don't have to do it in a mean way. And, and the way I'm saying it might make you think that. No, we do it lovingly, but we do it firmly. We do it without any regret whatsoever because God commands us to do it. We don't regret stuff that God is commanding us to do. So now we go on to the green and the pink, the number two, A and B. So these, these verses are what the Cretans are now to do as compared to what they used to do. And what's interesting here is that you have seven reflected in each. And this is no coincidence. We know seven is the number of perfection. And we know total depravity. We know that as unbelievers, they were totally depraved and they could do no good. I don't care how nice they were. They could do no good for God, none whatsoever. So now, though, that they're Christians, though their behavior may be so similar, they may be falling into these same sins, what they're doing now is done in faith for God and or ought to be. And so that's what he's reminding them to do. So let me run through them. I won't spend too long on these. But starting at verse, in the middle of verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, and to show all humility to all men. So be subject to rulers, be ready for every good work, speak uh, no evil of no one, be peaceable, be gentle, showing all humility to all men. So now, be subject to rulers and authorities. So we're talking about submission. Be ready for every good work. How do you get ready for something? You have to prepare. You can't just be ready if you're not prepared. And so we will get to good works later. I think that's something that we must define because this letter uh, obsesses. Paul obsesses over good works in this letter to Titus. We want to understand exactly what he's saying. Speak evil of no one. Now, we might think evil. It's harder to control our thoughts than it should be our tongue. But yet, we ought not say all that comes into our heart. And really, even in our heart is where we must learn to crucify our thoughts, crucify that which corrupts us and which makes us something less than God's child in behaving on this earth. So we want to speak evil of no one, be peaceable. And so here I think of peace officers. That's what police officers were often called in various societies. They are called peace officers because they were charged with keeping the peace and yet, police don't always do that well. And so I've seen some videos where the police aggravate an already difficult situation. But personally, I've been in situations where police have come in and diffused the situation that had begun to get out of hand. And so you see both failure and success. They're people. 
And so it's no wonder that we see good and bad. And yet that's what their role is. And yet we, as Christians, and this is being spoken to all of those Cretans, all of them that used to be evil beasts, liars, and lazy gluttons, now they're called to be peacekeepers, peacemakers, to knit hearts together. Don't drive them apart. And too often when we know something negative about somebody, we share it without thinking, without thought as to what our intentions are. And too often our intentions are not good. We don't need to share what it is we're sharing that's bad about someone with this person, yet we do so anyway. And so we're to be peace, peaceable, speak evil of no one, and yet that comes together to kind of start driving up tension, driving wedges between people. We're to be gentle. We're to help others. We're to be kind. We're to be considerate, showing all humility to all men. Now, some humility to all men, some humility to some men, all humility to some men. It's the all and the all that are really, really difficult here. Uh, when I see Christians, supposed Christians, I don't know them personally perhaps, but when I see them castigating uh, other people online, I just think, well, I don't know. Maybe they're Christians. Maybe they just really don't, they aren't governing their conduct well at that moment. And yet, we can so often look no different from the world. And that's exactly the opposite of God, what God wants from us. He expects us to behave ourselves. He expects us to be different than unbelievers in behavior. And that is probably the thing that I most admire in Christians. If I have Christian heroes, it's those that are so godly, that are so respectful of others, that they just stick out. They, they are just, they're people that you admire. They're people that everyone admires, even if they disagree with them but yet they speak ill of no one. They are just so uh, factual when they speak. They're so loving. They try to point out the positive in things. Now, I'm not saying that I, I want to be a Joel Osteen. I want you all to be Joel Osteens. No, we don't ignore the bad, but we don't bring it out in such a virulent, angry, judgmental way. We tactfully bring up with them issues that need to be discussed. So then we come to the seven imperfections of the non-Christian. This is what they used to be, these, these uh, Cretans, when they were unbelievers, foolish. Now, foolish means senseless, without sense, acting without uh, any understanding whatsoever. And in the context, I think we could say that it's spiritual understanding. And so the person may not be foolish in regards to the ways of the world. They may be very shrewd and wise there, but we're talking about with respect to God. How is it that they're behaving with respect to God? The second is disobedient, disobedient towards God and man. And not all, but yet consistently enough to where the underlying premise is, you're not the boss of me, nobody's the boss of me, I'm my own boss. I am the authority in this world that I adhere to. They might uh, cast that upon some cause or something. We see that a lot in our culture where unbelievers get tossed to and fro by whatever causes come up, but yet they still act as their own boss. They're disobedient to everything and everyone at the, at the heart, deceived. Uh, here, one of my favorites is obviously 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And so this is where the average unbeliever is deceived, doing Satan's will and totally unaware of it. And so our prayer through gentleness is to rebuke them such that they will come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil. So they are deceived. Serving various lusts and pleasures. The... Uh, the uh, New King James doesn't really convey the strength of that. This describes them as being enslaved to these lusts and pleasures. These are not just passing things. These are things they devote their lives to. They devote their time and energy to. And when on, left unchecked, they tend to grow stronger and stronger and stronger, exerting greater control over people. Living in malice and envy. Malice is when you want and like destroying things. And you see malice in some people. They're just very, very evil people. They just like destroying things. 
Uh, sometimes young children are like that, just thoughtlessly. They just destroy things. They've never really been trained and held accountable. And yet, too often, those children grow up into their teen years, and now they're thugs out on the street. Living in malice and envy. If you're envious, you don't want to see anybody having it, something that you don't. It's unfair. And so you would rather see that that they have destroyed than seeing them enjoying it. And that, of course, is to totally repudiate the second table of the law, where we're told to love our brother, want to see our brothers. And that's really a great test of your character. Can you be happy for people even when they are achieving something that you have tried hard to do and haven't achieved yet? Can you truly be happy for them? And not just if you love them, not just if they're your brother or some good friend, but just some average person. You don't even know them. But can you be happy for them? That's a good test of your heart. Hateful. To be hateful is to be offensive, disgusting, repulsive. Again, a very strong word here. To be hateful is to just despise any good that you see in others, want to see it destroyed, hating one another. So obviously, being hateful gives rise to then you hating one another. This is kind of the natural result of the cumulative failure of your character. You are a person that's foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving lusts and pleasures, uh, living in malice and envy, hateful. Well, then you are going to hate people. The only reason you will not hate this or that or that person is that they are in some way useful to you. It's all about you by this point. So that's what he said many of you were. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now, before I go on to verse 4, I want to skip ahead to cover this next portion, this small portion of what they uh, are to do. And this is down in 8, and if you look at it, it's in green. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So now, uh, long ago, uh, I don't know, a couple years ago or whatever, I shared an illustration. I'll share it again. There was a street evangelist, and I didn't look up his name, but I'm pretty sure it was over in England, and it was in the late 1800s, maybe early 1900s. But he was having a street rally just out on the street in poor section of London, and he gets a heckler who is an advocate for science and who just thinks this man's going on about religion is foolishness, so much foolishness. And this man, I, I wish I had kind of taken time to look up the quote because it's beautiful, but he challenged that scientist. He addressed this heckler, and he said, okay, you know, you're a man of science. Then I think we should have a test. He said, you show up here tonight at 8 p.m. with all of those whose lives have been transformed for the better by science. And I will show up with those whose lives have been transformed by the good of religion. I'll show up here with men who used to be drunks living in the gutter who are now upstanding citizens. I'll show up here with women who were prostitutes who are now homemakers and, and uh, upholding a, a, fa a good family lifestyle. And he said, I will bring dozens of such people here tonight. I challenge you to do the same. And so the man didn't accept the challenge, of course. I mean, he was just spouting off. He was just against religion for the sake of science. And yet, if anything, we're much further along that path now than we were 100 years ago. So see, we should see transformation of culture in Christianity, and we tend to. So what Paul has contrasted here is this before and after picture, and he expects them to be shocked by this. He wants to, them to keep that in mind as they roll forward through time, weeks, months, years. It's hard to fight this world. It's hard to fight against temptations. It's hard to sanctify, crucify your flesh. But yet, look at the picture of what he's painting, of how life used to be versus how life should be. Now, in verse 8, he talks about these good works, and I need to define good works. He said in verse 8, that they should be careful to maintain good works, that they are good and profitable for men. So, 
What first, though, are prerequisites to good works? The Bible has... Now, I haven't gone exhaustive on this because it's just a part of our sermon today, but yet this is worthy of a sermon in itself. But I'm going to list two prerequisites of any good works, and they're obviously right here in the Bible for anybody to see. First, we know that any good work to be a good work must be done in faith. Jesus, in Matthew 7, tells people that I will, in the hereafter, they will come forward to him and say, didn't I do all this, 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 and that? And he said, depart from me, I never knew you. So we know that whatever was in their minds, whatever they had actually done on this earth, did not qualify in the least because it has to be done in faith. Good works, let me, let me have you focus on this. I want to read this phrase that I think explains the context of good works very well. Good works are performed by Christians, not those wanting to become Christians. So good works are entirely unrelated to becoming a Christian, but they are the product of being a Christian. Now, we also know something else from 1 Corinthians 13. We know that good works must flow from love. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul said, "'Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor,' And though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. When you research good works in the Bible, you'll see the, the word profit or reward. And Christ especially, and I'll get to a few of them, he especially speaks of there being this reward for good works. And what Paul says is that anything, even sacrificing your body to be burned, is not going to amount in any profit for you personally unless it was done in love. And so obviously the love in question is towards both tables of the law, God and man. We are to love God and our fellow man. And so anything that's done with diluted motives, if not entirely burnt up, will at least have a loss of value. So our motive must be right. It can't be guilt. It can't be pride. It can't be fear. There are many, many bad motivators in this world. We could list them all. But the only good motivator is that it must be done out of love, in faith, for God and His glory. Now, let me give you examples of not-so-good works. 1 Corinthians 3.15, Paul said, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. So now we know that works have nothing to do with salvation, but they do have something to do with us being rewarded in heaven. He will be saved, but his works will be burnt up. Jesus warned this in Matthew 6. This is all in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So now we know that if we're trumpeting our good works, there went the reward. God took it away. There are several more from the Sermon on the Mount. I won't go into the details, but he warned them to pray and fast in secret, not to be praying on the street corner where would you, you would be admired by the people. Again, your, your uh, reward is gone. You must cultivate this as an aspect of your character. It must cut, flow from a heart of love and faith. Uh, Phil likes to quote this one, the receiving a prophet's reward when you, when you host a prophet, when you support a prophet, giving a cup of cold water to someone engaged in the ministry. You get their reward. They get their reward. It's a two for one, right? You, you've heard those, those things. You know, send me $100 or, or whatever you want to send by the end of uh, next week, and we'll double, double your gift. That's exactly what this is. When we are assisting those that are engaged in good works, as uh, qualified by the Bible, you get the reward and the person doing the work gets the reward. It's wonderful. When we endure criticism or persecution on behalf of Christ, we are rewarded. That again is conveyed in the Sermon on the Mount. So, two prerequisites, faith and love. We've got a few of these that we know about works being burned up. So now, I want to cover a couple that you might think, well, maybe these are good works. And I haven't, like I said, I haven't given this a whole lot of study, but I think this is the way we think. So if you think like me, then maybe this will help. As Christians, we must tithe, right? Tithing is not a good work. 
Tithing is not something that God will reward you for. It is expected of you. As husbands or wives, we are to love our spouse. That is a responsibility we have. That's just doing what it is God expects us to do. There is no reward in addition to that. Now, of course, there are many intangible rewards, but what I'm speaking of specifically is what God speaks of as laying up treasure in heaven, this profit that we as Christians can have. And Jesus was very clear in wanting to motivate us by telling us to lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust corrupt. So see, he knows what he's talking about. He knows how people think and act. So we must take his word and say, yes, Jesus, I know what you mean. I want to do what's right. Now, if it only cultivates this kind of mercenary behavior on our part, then obviously love has fallen by the wayside. So that's why the faith and love, the prerequisites are necessary. But you will be rewarded. And what's beautiful about it is it's, that it's as you shun the need of the reward that God rewards you all the more. So you don't do it for the reward, but God just wants you to know that you will be rewarded for what you're doing. So we must tithe. We must love our spouses. As parents, we must provide for our children. These all come without the promise of additional work. These are not good works. These are just what we're expected to do. So good works are over and above what is minimally required of us. Jesus, in Luke 17, was asked by his apostles uh, about faith. And he shared a story with them at first blush. makes it seem a little odd. But he, he tells the story of the servants coming in from the field, and then he said, what is the master of the house going to do when the servant comes in the field? Is he going to say, oh, come here, come here, come here. You know, sit down, have dinner. Even before the master eats, no. He'll say, now that you're in from the field, make my dinner. And what Jesus said is, you're a servant. That's what you're supposed to do. You ought not be surprised at that. You ought to do that. And then you know what he called these people? Unprofitable servants. You are an unprofitable servant, meaning you're not even going beyond the minimum. You're expecting to be served because you only did your job. He's rebuking these disciples for asking him this question. I'm like, wow, this is packed full of information. So when we have done what we are minimally commanded, don't expect applause. You're just finally doing what it is that God's been telling you to do all along. You're being a good husband. You're being a good father. You're doing what it is you're supposed to do, tithing and attending church regularly. These are the minimum, the bare minimum. You're not behaving like a Christian if you're not doing those things. Now you get to that, and then you go beyond it. Now is where the possibility of good works really comes in. So I've been kicking this around a while, but what are good works? I still haven't answered that question. And really, the Bible kind of spreads it around here and there. You have to figure it out. So, in short, though, we all have something today. All of us do. We have time. We have talents that God's blessed us with. And we have money. We have treasure. We have the situation in which God has placed us. So the question is, is any of that on your behalf, to what extent is time, talent, and treasure going towards getting us beyond the bare minimum of, of being a good, well-behaving Christian in God's society? Now we're getting into the realm of good works. We choose each day how to use our 24 hours, our 14,400 minutes, our 86,400 seconds. We all make those choices. We can all be lazy, and I have admitted to you that's a besetting sin of mine. I love being lazy. My wife will tell you. She is the worker bee in our house, and she has a name for me. I'm the lazy bee. I don't know if I've shared that with you before. I'm the lazy bee in my house. My wife's the worker bee, and it's true. It's true. So, see, we choose also how to employ the gifts God's given us. People have amazing variety of, guilt, of skills, even in this church. How are you using them in what is defined by God as a good work? Are you using them in what God defines as good work? You ought to be. God gave it to you. He even tells the stories, the parables in the, in the Gospels that use the word talent. Now, there, of course, we know it's treasure, but it still applies in terms of us and our talents, our skills. And then, of course, is our money. How are we using it? 
Are we using it to get beyond the minimum and to go beyond, to bless others with it, to receive in part their blessing as we tithe or as we give gifts to people in, in, uh, involved in ministries? Now, one thing that you have to ask, and I think everybody does, it's, it's reasonable, is what about the good works of non-Christians? Paul in Romans 14, 23 said this, very pithy little thing you ought to remember, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, he's speaking here in the context of food sacrificed to idols and people having doubts about that and then eating it anyway, thinking that it might be sin, and then Paul confirms, yes, if that's the way you're thinking, if that's how your conscience is, then yes, you're sinning because you think it's a sin. You're going against your conscience that God has informed, and you're accepting this. So he tells him, you ought not do that. But this is a much broader principle that he shared. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That means that anyone on this earth that lacks faith in God, and we know who God is, right? God isn't Allah. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Anyone that lacks faith in that God can do no good work. But I would hasten to say that it's better that they do good things in our world than evil things, what we would view as destructive, malicious, those, that list of seven things I listed, but yet they are not biblically qualified to be good works because they lack faith. And then beyond that, once you have faith, you require love. And many of us, even if we have faith, we are weak in our love. We must bolster our love to be able to then do the good works that God requires of us. So, let's move on to the third section, and that's the blue in here, and it's uh, verses 4 through 6, and let me go ahead and read that. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, this could easily be a whole sermon, obviously. I mean, this is just jam-packed with wonderful stuff. Um, but. I didn't want to devote the whole sermon to this. It really didn't fit the context of what I wanted to cover on Titus, but briefly, I want to point out that if you want a proof text for the Trinity, this is it. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 is a beautiful illustration of the Trinity at work. You have the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ our Savior explicitly referenced, but let me read the clauses that refer to them through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So see, it's a clause. It's a qualifying clause. Then, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Again, a clause, a qualifying clause. When you look at the personal pronouns here in this whole text, his mercy, he saved us, he poured out his grace. Every personal pronoun here is God the Father. So let me read just that context. He's also listed up at the top as God our Savior. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior... Now, we know this can't just be Jesus because down here it says, when He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the He can't refer to Jesus, right? I mean, that would not be good English. God our Savior, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs. So this is God the Father. It's the Trinity and its beautiful fullness. So now, the Father and Jesus are mentioned explicitly, or the Jesus and the Holy Spirit are mentioned explicitly, as I said, but it makes the Father's role logically necessary to have a, that He there make any sense whatsoever. I want to focus on what the Father did. What the Holy Spirit and Jesus did is made very explicit right there in their clauses, but look at the Father. When the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, and then, but according to His mercy, He saved us 
and then down below, that having been justified by His grace. There are just these beautiful words that capture the essence of what God has done for us. Kindness, love, mercy, saved, grace. So now let's turn our attention to the seventh verse, which we'll cover last. And the reason I restructured this a little bit is that it's common in the Greek to have the most important thing, Hebrew as well, and with the biblical writers, to have the most important thing in the middle. And so I believe he did kind of wind in and wind out with this, and the emphasis was upon what I just covered with God the Trinity and now with why it is that this has all happened. And so what has happened to the Cretans? Having been justified by his grace. So the first thing that has happened to them is that they have been declared just. They had been under condemnation, just like every person born into this world rests under the condemnation of God for having failed him. In Adam, we all failed, we all sinned, we were all guilty, and we are now rescued from that. These Cretans were rescued from that and declared just by God, such that they should become heirs. So the Cretans now, maybe for the first time, who knows, but they are learning their destiny. They've been saved from sin, yes, but now they're being told of this glorious future that will last eternally where they will live in holiness. They are heirs, heirs, and they are heirs to royalty. Now, some of you might know, um, some of you I think have studied uh, the Middle East. The House of Saud has been around for a while, uh, over 200 years. The House of Saud, the ruling family in Saudi Arabia, who's ruled them now for well over 100 years, they have 15,000 members of royalty in their families. Some of these men over the last 80, 90 years have fathered 50, 60, 70, even as many as 100 children. And those children have all grown into adulthood, all, you know, so many have had children, so they're all princes and princesses. And for the most part, they can be very arrogant. Now, this is 15,000 people in the nation of Saudi Arabia that are in this royal line. They're raised as royalty. So imagine them as a child, as a young child, one, two, three years old. They are being brought up in a royal household. They're being taught you are a potential heir to the throne. You are worthy of the respect of this whole nation, this whole world, because you're royalty. We are royalty. And so let's not forget that. Let's not let it go to our heads, but let's not forget it. 1 Timothy 6, verses 14 through 16. Here, let me start reading at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So we serve the Lord Christ, the only potentate, King of kings, Lord of lords. We are heirs in his family. Jesus will reign forever. In Titus, it speaks of according to the hope of eternal life. So the thing about Saudi Arabia and the way that they uh, ascend to the throne and the fact that we are all fallen humans uh, leads to the potential for bloody conflict. When you read Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, you see the bloody conflict that ruled within the Jewish realm during the times of the kings. The same is true in our world with kings, anything that is a kingdom, any, anything that is an aristocracy. There is such intrigue going on in the palaces as to who will rule next. Are they going to be evil? Are they going to be good? 
Are they going to be strong? Are they going to be weak? All of these are considerations. And, and the Western governments of like Britain and France and the United States has had extremely strong interest in who becomes the next king in Saudi Arabia and these other Middle Eastern uh, aristocracies. These are very powerful people. And so they can do a lot of evil if they're an evil person. Now, Christ will rule, however, not for 20, 30, 40, 50 years like any other human. He will rule forever. There will be no other potentate, no other king take his place. And so it's so wonderful that we are heirs to a king that will never die. We will be princes and princesses in his realm. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 6. This is just so beautiful. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Now, Paul is asking these questions rhetorically, and he ought to be, because I had no idea that we would judge the world and angels. I don't know where that reference is in the Bible. And if you know where it is, please let me know. But I think Paul is here revealing something to us. And it's amazing what he's revealing to us, that we will judge in the hereafter. We will judge the world. We will judge the angels. So we have a glorious future as heirs. So the title of this message was Maintaining Morale. Why is it that we ought to do what it is God wants us to do? Because He's promised us so much. He's done so much for us already, and He promises us so much more that our minds cannot comprehend. Our imaginations are too weak. So Titus was to reject the vice of men to prevent them from causing damage to the church, and he beautifully described God here as kind, loving, merciful, saving us and being gracious. He was to exhort, rebuke, and remind the Cretans of their salvation and duty. And so that from which they've been saved in their future destiny with God. And now I've reminded you of all the same things. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your presence with us. We are unworthy, and we know this. Uh, Lord, we are not uh, young princes and princesses that think ourselves worthy of these roles. That's why Paul's rebuke uh, falls properly upon us. Uh, how can we understand this future that awaits us? We pray, Lord, please have these truths to modify us, to have us uh, maintain a proper view of who you are and who you have made us to be and are making us to be. We pray, Lord, grant us faith and love and a hunger for good works such that we can uh, best represent you as your ambassadors on this earth. We pray, Father, that you would bless us, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, and that we would be reminded constantly of Christ's sacrifice to make this all possible. We give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen.